Um, okay, so briefly, I am going to um, give us a, a short review from the last three chapters. So um, Esther 3, we um, kind of landed in the middle places, right? Um, Haman and Xerxes were slinging back a drink while the rest of the citadel was um, thrown into confusion and uh, the God's covenant people in particular um, were kind of left dangling. Um, and so then we move into Esther 4 and um, as Andrea just said, um, Amber walked us through, um, she made the connection, uh, she shared the hyperlink with us to Joel 2 and um, the, um, how Joel, um, the prophet, tells the people not to rend their clothes, but rather to rend their hearts, um, because perhaps maybe the Lord will relent um, from his judgment and he will save us. And those, those were the hyperlinks that we found in Esther 4 as well, um, as Mordecai went to Esther and um, challenged her to consider that possibly she could be um, a vessel of the Lord's deliverance for his people. And then last week, Andrea walked us through chapter five um, and the, the picture of the landfill on fire and the understanding that pressure um, really reveal, begins to reveal what's inside. So although um, Esther had not previously aligned with her Jewish identity, up until that point, Esther turns toward that identity in um, chapter five and makes a choice. She chooses to act on what might have been a grain of mustard seed sized faith and invites Xerxes and Haman to, to and hosts them at a banquet so she can step into um, her destiny, really. And so tonight, our main idea um, comes from this um, that we're, we are focusing on all year, that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He defines our identity and invites us into lives of influence. And so knowing that, um, if you don't remember anything else from this particular lesson, I hope that you remember this, which is my main point for the evening. God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan. Being the author and purpose the, and um, hero of our story, the purposeful author and hero of our story, lends itself to the fact that God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan. So you might also recall um, that Amber used the word peripety, um, that the story of Esther is situated around a particular literary device called peripety, um, and which means that as the plot unfolds in one direction, so say the plot is unfolding kind of in a downward slope like this, um, there is a particular point in the story when all of a sudden there is a reversal and the plot then moves on a completely different trajectory. Um, so it's the pivotal point in a story that brings a reversal. And, oops, sorry, I think I, there we go. Um, so we are at that point right now. 
right between chapter five and chapter six, we find the peripety. We find the pivot, pivotal point that will begin to um, reveal the reversal. And the reversal, um, I say that it begins to be revealed. It is a slow process of revelation through, um, through chapter six and into the rest of the um, chapters of Esther. Um, so it's not a moment of instantaneous um, change, um, but rather a point where things shift and we begin to see um, the reversal revealed. Um, so the reversal takes shape, and we'll see this. Um, let's look at Esther 6, starting in verse 1 starting with a sleepless night. Verse one, that night the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of the reign, of his reign so that it could be read to him. And in reading the history of his reign, a surprising, oops, a surprising discovery um, is made, starting in verse three, um, Xerxes discovers that uh, after asking the question, what reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this? Because he reads that a plot, an assassination plot, has been discovered and thwarted. And so Xerxes needs to know, how did we, re we reward him? Because in this, um, in this culture, um, in the palace intrigue and always vying for power, and um, it was very important that people who showed loyalty to the king were publicly rewarded um, as kind of a prohibition against um, or an inhibition against others who might try to come against the king. Um, and so then to discover that there had been a plot, the plot was thwarted, the um, perpetrators were um, um, executed, and yet the person who had discovered the plot has never been rewarded. That was a big um, problem in Xerxes' mind. And so he knew that immediately um, he needed to take care of it. And, and lo and behold, we have an early visitor to the king's rooms that day. Um, as you know, as you read the story, Haman shows up because he needs to make it clear that today is the last day that Mordecai is going to live and snub me in the way that he is. So he shows up to the king's um, rooms with the plan to um, take down Mordecai once and for all. And, um, and yet, as we, um, as we see and we read in the text, um, Xerxes has quite a surprise for Haman. So if we look at um, verse 10, this is after Haman has described just the most wonderful way that a man could be honored by the king. Um, and, and just a side note, the fact that um, Mordecai, or that Haman um, specified that um, the person being honored by the king needs to ride on a horse that you have ridden in on and um, wear robes that you have worn um, there was a belief that the clothes that the king wore um, carried with it some of his divinity. And so then if someone else were to put on the robes that the king wore, he would be sharing some of his divinity with the wearer of those clothes. Um, and, and the same with the horse. Um, 
If you remember early on as we were talking about the beauty pageant of the, um, the virgins from the 127 provinces, um, once they spent their night with the king, they were ever after in the, in the palace, never to be married, never to have relationship outside because it would have been an affront to the king for any other man to have had that particular woman, a woman that the king um, had, had slept with. So in the same way, anything that the king touches, whether it be robes or horses or whatever, um, it, it in some ways gives the identity of the king to the person who, were to put, who was to put that on. So that's why Haman would be like, yeah, and I mean, like, he needs to wear your robes and he needs to ride on your horse because Haman's thinking, I mean, I'm, I'm basically the king anyway. Um, so as, you know, and then Haman's standing there and Xerxes says, great, go get Mordecai and take him. We, um, we see that humiliating development. Excellent, the king says, says to Haman. Quick, take the robes and my horse and do just as you have said for, Morde for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the gate of the, the palace, leave out nothing you have suggested. So can't you imagine it as they're walking through the streets of the city and Haman is supposed to be, is proclaiming, this is what happens to the man who the king wants to honor. This is what happens over and over again. The shame, you can just, you can just picture the shame, layer after layer, um, pouring onto Haman. And so then when we get to... Um, Verse 12, afterward, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected and completely humiliated. And so not only, though, is it humiliating to Haman, we see in verse 13 that there is now a reversal of understanding. So Haman's closest advisors, his friends and his wife, have now switched from being like, you need to build this um, spike so that we can impale Mordecai to realizing that um, Mordecai's um, rise in the eyes of Xerxes is going to absolutely result in the fall of Haman in the eyes of, eyes of Xerxes. So when Haman told his wife Zeresh and all his friends what had happened, his wise advisors and his wife said, since Mordecai this man who has hum humiliated you is of Jewish birth, you will never succeed in your plans against him. It will be fatal to continue opposing him. And then Haman's hustled off by the king's eunuchs to the second banquet. So in Esther, well, let me rephrase that. For people who really love history, every single timeline is important. But I recognize that not everybody loves history. <laughs> So I will just say that in Esther, the timeline is important. And, um, and also the structure of the story is important. In fact, it's so important that it, the structure of the story, again, this trajectory down, hitting a peripety, and then a trajectory up, um, it, the structure plays as significant a role in conveying the message of Esther as the content does. But here's where the timeline is important. Because in the timeline of Esther, we keep bumping up against waiting. Um, in Esther 3, if you remember, the lots fell on a particular death date that was almost a year from when they made the decision to when the death, um, the annihilation of the Jews was supposed to happen. 
And in that year, there is time for God to act. In the waiting, God is acting. Um, again, in Esther 5, there is a putting off of, or what we would maybe consider a putting off of the actual event when Esther goes into the king and, phew, she's not, she's not killed immediately. He extends his scepter to her. That's wonderful. But she says, come to a banquet. Instead of just asking immediately, um, can you save my people? She puts it off and says, can you come to a banquet? And then at the first banquet, what does she do? She puts it off and says, can you come to another banquet? Um, so again, in the waiting, God is working because between the first banquet and the second, second banquet, something pretty significant happens. And we begin to see the downfall of Haman. Um, and in the hiddenness, we see that God is working. So let's picture the telling of Esther as if it were a play. Um, and at the end of Esther 5, Haman hurries home, conflicted, um, conflicted because on the one hand, he's super um, full of pride and delight at being invited to the, by the queen to not one, but two exclusive banquets. But he's also so full of rage at the audacity of Mordecai to snub him. And then the curtain closes as Haman gathers his wife, Zeresh, and his friends who then counsel Haman to set up a tall pole on which to impale Mordecai. And at the end of chapter 5, we are left once again waiting to see what will happen. The author of Esther was um, brilliant at writing the cliffhanger. Um, so we're waiting, wondering, how will Yahweh bring salvation? Why does Haman get to keep plotting evil against Mordecai? And then the curtain opens on Xerxes having a restless night sleep. At first glance, this seems a rather odd aside to the movement of the plot. Like, great, sorry, he can't sleep. Um, I mean, great. Finally, after um, he can't sleep, he hears the annals, his, his record, the records of his reign read to him. And um, finally, Mordecai is going to be remembered. Again, great. He's been waiting five years, and I would guess at this point he has maybe given up on the hope that he would ever be rewarded. Um, but at the very least, I would say this slight that Mordecai experienced has probably lost importance in Mordecai's mind by this point. Um, there are more important things like the deliverance for his people. Um, but in the gap between Esther 5 and Esther 6, you know, picture the curtains are closed. There's no activity going on on the stage. Um, and, and we begin to see the revelation of the peripety with the curtains closed. The peripety happens when there is no human agency involved. The king can't sleep. And that is where the peripety happens. The whole story shifts and the great reversal begins to be revealed. Here again, we see that the structure of the story plays as significant a role in conveying the message of Esther, the message that God is the purposeful author and hero of our story. He invites us um, into lives of influence um, he, and he can, gives us our identity. We see that God is the purposeful author and hero of the story. We see that it is his hand that causes the reversal 
because nothing else is happening when the reversal um, takes place. It is in seeing that Mordecai's story is changing and the story of God's covenant people is changing that we are able to look more closely and see that the pivotal moment, the peripety, comes by the hand of God who is not mentioned. God who seems hidden, but who will faithfully fulfill his covenant promises through his providence, even when his people are in exile for the very reason that they have broken his covenant. The shift does not happen when Esther becomes queen. The shift does not happen when Mordecai displays loyalty to the king. The shift does not happen when Esther chooses to go to the king with the determination of, if I perish, I perish. No, the shift, the pivot, the peripety happens when no one but God could have made it happen. God is working in the waiting. He's working in the hard. He is working as things seem to get worse rather than better. He is working when it seems nothing can be done. He is even working when specific choices that I have made landed me in the terrible situation in which I currently find myself. Even then, God is working. The king's sleepless night as the pivot point of the whole story reminds us that God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward his redemptive plan. Let's not forget that all of scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. Esther is a part of that story. God preserves his covenant people through whom Jesus would be born to offer salvation to the entire world. In Esther, God was the catalyst for the reversal. The same is true for us and for all of humanity. God has provided the pivot point in all of history. Galatians 4, 4 and 5 says, But when the right time came, God sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth, born of a woman subject to the law. God sent him to buy freedom for us who were slaves to the law so that he could adopt us as his very own children. That phrase, when the right time came, the peripety, the center pivotal point of all of history, when the right time came. So I wonder, on the line of your story, where are you? Are you, have you experienced and recognized that um, Jesus is the pivotal moment in all of history, but also in all of our individual lives. Each of our lives are told through many individual chapters. Um, each of our lives has countless scenes and episodes. And all of our meta stories hinge on our response to the ultimate pivot moment, the ultimate pivot person in history. So where in that meta story are you? Have you recognized that ultimate salvation is found in acknowledging and confessing that Jesus is the one true God and he is the only way to salvation? How has that pivot impacted your life and changed the course 
of your story? How has that pivot changed the way that you orient your life? Where are you on the line of your story? But just as scripture has a meta story and all of history has a meta story, um, scripture also has different parts of the story told by different stories. And we are studying one of those, Esther. Esther is one part of the meta story. In the same way, all of us have a meta story that has a pivotal moment where we can choose to follow the one true God um, and salvation through the Lord Jesus. But we also all have seasonal stories. We aren't just given a meta story. We each walk through different seasons, chapters, and episodes. And in those, we need pivot moments as well. So I wonder, where's the pivot? In your season right now, maybe in a difficult relationship, maybe in a difficult diagnosis, maybe you fill in the blank. Where is the pivot? As we've studied the last several chapters of Esther, we have been invited to consider where it is that we are currently waiting for salvation. Are we in a middle place where we can't even see a glimmer of light at the end of the tunnel? We're stuck and there doesn't seem to be any help coming. Or has the Holy Spirit brought you to a point of crisis that has required a new resolve in following him? Or has the pressure of a particular situation revealed work that needs to be done? Confession that needs to happen, grace that needs to be received, or care that needs to be accepted? In what way are you currently waiting for a pivot? The thing is, as we look at Esther and even as we look at our own lives, the pivot, the peripety, doesn't conclude the trial. Esther, Mordecai, and the rest of God's covenant people had months and months left to wait to see the promise of deliverance become a reality. The reversal has begun to be revealed, and yet there continues to be a waiting in our own lives, in our current situations that feel like sandpaper or a pit or a dead end or a big, huge question mark, it's possible that we have experienced and can even identify that things have shifted and yet there is still heartache to navigate and life that has to be lived between the hard places. Grief isn't tidy or tame. Loss, betrayal, broken relationships, life-threatening or life-taking illness. The pivot allows us to see the light in the circumstances, but it doesn't remove the trial. There is still waiting. There is still work to be done. But now we can see the light. The trajectory has changed. Our eyes are looking at the light. So where are you? Where can you see that God uses the ordinary events of our lives to move forward 
his redemptive plan. Where can you see the light? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you and praise you again for this story of Esther that you have preserved for us so that we can know you more. Even in this story where your name is not mentioned, um, even in this story where we can't know the motivations of the people involved and, um, and things seem a little um, out of whack, I'm grateful that you show us again and again that you are the one who is purposefully moving um, this forward for your redemptive plan. I ask that you would um, continue to open our eyes and cause us to have understanding beyond our ability. Um, give us, Holy Spirit, your understanding and lead us into all truth as you promised to do. Um, we love you and we will be sure and certain to give you all the praise and honor and glory due your name. In Jesus' name, amen.